Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church, and um, we are in the middle of our one-on-one summer series. And we've been talking about different topics throughout the summer. God, cross, have we talked about Jesus yet? I think we talk about Jesus every Sunday, but Jesus is a topic too, I think, and there's Holy Spirit, um, uh, society, church, all these larger kind of big topics, but all very foundational topics. And a lot, of, a lot of, we've gotten a lot of great feedback from this series because sometimes we just gloss over these things in the church. If you've been part of the church for a long time, these things just become mundane sometimes. You're like, yeah, yeah, the cross. What we're trying to do in this series is, is view them in a different way. View them how our society views them. View, view these things how our, our city would see them in order for us to be equipped evangelistically to talk about these things in our city, to have truth actually engage society and truth not just remain here. So we're talking about the cross today. The cross, it, just think about the cross for a second. Um, and if you've been in church for a while, you may not have thought about this for a while, but if you didn't grow up in church and you entered into the church, try to think about what you thought about the cross back then and how weird it was. I mean, it's, it's a symbol of death, right? And if you think about the cross, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of death that was probably one of the most heinous, one of the most uh, gruesome deaths like we've devised as human beings in history is the cross. And what makes it weird is that we wear it around our necks, is that we, you know, we use it as decoration, we put it on signs and, and it's in cemeteries and all these things, but it's a symbol of death. It'd be like me wearing a, a guillotine around my neck and saying, hey guys, hey, what's up? Or, or, like a, or us putting an electric chair up there and saying, look, look, but that's the cross, and that's, how, that's why it's so weird for our, our city that we're, we're pointing to something that was a symbol of death. And the only thing that doesn't make it weird is if Jesus actually changed the symbol, as if he took a symbol of death and changed it into something else, into a symbol of life. Because why else would we wear it? Why else would, it, would we have it up on our stage? Because well, if, you've, if you've come into, into here and you're not a Christian, and we have a symbol of death up there, I, that's not very welcoming, is it? But Jesus, he did something with the cross. He took death and he changed the, the course and the trajectory of all of our lives through his own death. And that's the power of the cross. That's the goodness of the cross. And so the cross essentially is, is a power exchange. Something happened when Jesus died on the cross. Some power exchange happened. And when we take the cross to our city, when we take the cross to our coworkers, to our, neighborhood, our neighborhoods, to our families, we need to take that power with us. Like there's, there's this essential power in the nature of the cross. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And before we get there, I want to give you the bottom line for today. This is, this is what the whole sermon is going to be about. It's one point, uh, and this will come up all throughout the sermon. This is, your identity in Christ is symbolized by an instrument of death so that you can become an instrument of life. Okay. And still that sounds a little weird. You're like, oh, an instrument of death. 
But no, we glory in Christ's death. We glory that that is actually a symbol of death, right? But it's so that we can become an instrument of life. So this passage in Hebrews, we're going to start in chapter 9, but I'm going to walk you guys through chapter 1 into half of chapter 2 before we get to chapter 9. So follow along with me from verse 1 in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and we're going we're gonna to go through that first. But do you have that? Oh, you don't? Okay. Then I'll, I'll just go through it with you guys. Um, so what's going on here is the writer of Hebrews, he's written this book, and Jesus has, remember, Jesus has died. He's been resurrected three days later. He's appeared to a bunch of people. He ascended into heaven, and the church has been established, and now we have the church living out the faith, okay? And we have all these people who are trying to figure out what just happened, and does it have any significance for them? Guys, this is our city, right? We can say all these things. We can say, Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the grave for you. Jesus ascended into heaven for you. Jesus established the church for you, but our city is like, so what? Why does that matter to me? You know, we, we say, oh, well, this is what makes the cross even weirder, that a guy 2,000 years ago died on it for you. And our city says, so what? Why does a guy who died on a cross 2,000 years ago have any bearing on my life today? And so we can take this truth to our city but they don't hear it as truth because there's no, they don't know the story. They don't know how it's impacted your life. So this is what's going on in this book. And the writer of Hebrews, so he's about to talk about all this, and he's, he's talking about the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's coming to save us and rescue us. And he says, long ago in verse 1, at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. And so we see the Son make an appearance here. Uh, the Son is capitalized, the Son of God. And he appointed him heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by his power, or by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the writer is starting to say that this guy, the son, who has died, who has been uh, resurrected, who appeared, okay, and he, notice he's not using the name Jesus. He's not calling him Jesus. He's calling him the son, okay? He says this person... This person is not an angel. He's not a created spiritual being. And he starts to make this distinction between the Messiah and angels. So uh, he's saying maybe, maybe you thought that angels and God were on the same, same level. He's saying no, no, no. The Son, the Messiah, is on the level with God. God is not on the same level with angels. And he starts to make this distinction. And in verse 5 he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say this? And he quotes scripture. And he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I'm his father and you're my son. And again, and he, he gives another example of a couple verses. And then he says, but of the son in verse 8, he says this, your throne, O God, is forever. And it's forever and ever. And you're going to uphold the scepter of righteousness. And your kingdom. And it's going to be forever. And you, Lord, the Messiah, the, the Son, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. They will perish, but you'll remain. And then he, say, he finishes it this way, and he says, to which of the angels did he ever say this? Again, distinction between, between who the Messiah is and other spiritual beings. He says, to which of them did he ever say this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He says, aren't all angels just ministering spirits who serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. We're the ones who inherit salvation. And he says, angels are just ministering spirits 
for us. He says, this is not the Son. This is not the Messiah. And he says, therefore, we got to pay close attention to what we've heard, he says. And then he goes on, he talks about angels again. And he says, now, it's been testified somewhere that this is, that this is the case. For the Son, you have made him a little lower than the angels for a time. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And he says, for us, in verse 8 of chapter 2, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, and at present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's making this contrast here. He says, we don't actually see everything in subjection to him now, but... Verse 9 says this, we do see something, and we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, so for a brief time, namely Jesus, and this is his introduction as the son. So the he, writer of Hebrews has been building this up, building this up, now he says, that guy's Jesus, namely Jesus, and he was crowned. And he's already cited this verse. Verse 9, he's already said it in chapter 1. And now he's applying it to Jesus. And he says, this guy's Jesus. He was crowned with glory and honor. He became the king because of the suffering. And not just any suffering, but he suffered to the point of death. So suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When the writer here says taste death, think about when you taste something. Um, you can't fully taste something unless you eat it. So this, this word here actually has, it can literally be translated as he ate death. So I have a seven-year-old and an almost six-year-old, two daughters. Emerson is my older one. Reagan is my younger one. And people ask me from time to time, they say, uh, do the girls, do you make different meals for them? Do they eat what you eat? Or, and I'm like, no, they always eat what we eat. We, we make one meal, and they eat that. Um, if they don't like it, it's too bad. That's what they're eating. If they don't want to eat it, too bad. <laughs> um, and, and, they, and they're very like, they're, now, of course, they have preferences, right? So let's say we make a veggie, and the girls don't like that veggie. Well, they can choose another veggie, but they still eat veggie. Do people use veggie, or is that just a parent thing? <laughs> I just said veggie like four times. I'm like, do regular people say veggie? <laughs> um, yeah, we probably use a lot of kid language <laughs> in our house. So they, but we all eat, we all eat veggie, right? So, um, and the girls also, they, they try anything. They have to. They can't, before they pronounce they dislike it, they actually have to consume it. They actually have to try it. And we also have them try new things, or every, any new thing they have to try, but let's say they tried a mushroom six months ago. Well, we would say, you gotta try a mushroom again, because their taste buds change, maybe they like it now, and it's actually, mushrooms isn't an, uh, hypothetical, that's actually happened with mushrooms. They liked it, they didn't like it, but now they like it again. So it's going to continue to change. Um, even Missy, I love mushrooms. Like they're my favorite, one of my favorite things. They're one of Missy's most hated things. She hates, she hates mushrooms. But even she tries them from time to time. Um, to set an example for her daughters. <laughs> so uh, with Emerson, though, my older one, it's it's fairly easy to get her to try something. You say, hey, Emerson, this is new. Um, you want to you wanna try this? And she says, yeah. She takes it, she puts it in her mouth, she eats it, and she says, no, I don't like it. Or she says, yeah, I, I want more. Reagan, our five-year-old, she's going to be six in a couple weeks, um, she's not like Emerson. So you, you ask her to try something, and she'll stare it down and then say, I don't like it. And you're like, no, you gotta try it. So then she like pokes at it. I don't like it. And you're like, no, 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 you, you have to eat it. And then 
she'll like take it and she'll lick it. <laughs> she'll like stick out her little tongue. She'll be like, no, no, I don't like it. And you're like, no, 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 you have to put it in your mouth. And then she'll take like the tiniest bite, like little mouse bite. And then she says, I don't like it. You're like, no, sweetie, you have to put it in your mouth, chew it up, and swallow it. And finally, after a lot of prodding and, and encouragement, and maybe yelling sometimes, I don't know, she, she'll put it in her mouth, chew it up, and she's so expressive in her face that she always prematurely declares her dislike for it in her facial expressions as she's eating it. And I wish I had a video of it that I could show you, because she's just like, her face is like grimacing. And you're like, sweetie, it's everything you like. It's like cheese and, or it's like chocolate, I don't know, whatever she likes. Um, and, and she's like saying, she, and then all of a sudden if she likes it, you'll see your face just change. And you're like, you like it? And she's like, yeah. You want some more? No. <laughs> it's, she doesn't want to go through the whole process again, and neither do we. Um, but she tried it, and she consumed it, and she ate it. A lot of you guys, with Jesus, you're just staring at Jesus. You haven't actually tried Jesus. You may have taken a little bite out of Jesus, and you said, ah, he's not, he's not for me. Nah, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, you know, you, you kind of poke at him a little bit, and then you say, yeah, that's, you know, that, that whole thing, that's, that's not for me. Jesus in John 6 actually says this. He says, verse 47, let me turn to it. He says here, truly, truly, I say to you, which whenever you see Jesus say that, that should get your attention. He's using truly twice, and then he's saying, hey guys, I'm saying this to you. If you're there with Jesus, you're like, yeah, I know. We hear you speaking. But he's emphasizing, like, something important is about to happen. Whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the desert, and they died. That didn't help them. They, they, they eventually died. That didn't give them eternal life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And you see, when he says this, you can kind of picture him saying this. Like he puts out his arms, like this, me, I am. I am the bread of life. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, which is a very significant phrase in the Gospel of John, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews are like, what? This is crazy. Like, how can this be? Verse 53, so Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like he has to get their attention again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a, that's, that's a very, it's, it's a very profound statement. So you're like, what does he mean? Uh, it's a very <laughs> hard and difficult statement. Because how many of you guys can say you've actually consumed Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection? Or, or for, for you guys, is that you've just tasted him? He says, no, unless you eat of it, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Life, dwelling, home. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Forever. And Jesus is saying, you have to consume all of me you can't just take some of me. You have to consume all of me if you're going to have any life whatsoever. You can have a little taste, but you're going back into death. You have to actually feed on my flesh and drink my blood, he says. That sounds, one, that sounds pretty gross. 
Like, two, we got, like, all these, like, vampire movies and stuff and zombie stuff. Like, we're all onto this tip in, in our culture these days. Like, but Jesus is saying something very theologically profound here. Now, you can't just taste. You can't just stare me down. You can't just poke at me. You actually have to swallow and consume me. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus does this with death. And this was because and by the grace of God. And Jesus didn't just poke at death. He didn't just take a little bite out of it. He put it in his mouth, he chewed it up, and he swallowed it. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death has been swallowed up in victory. He says death has been swallowed up in victory. And, and Paul gets this from Isaiah chapter 25. This is an 800-year-old prophecy that Paul gets this from. I think it's 25, is that right? Yeah. Um, and he says this in, so just follow along with me on the screen. Isaiah is saying this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I'll praise your name. You've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And then, he, and then he talks about things that God has done in verses 2, 3, 4, uh, and 5. And then in verse 6, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Think about your favorite meal. Think about your favorite food. That's what, that's what God is preparing here. A feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine. Think about your favorite drink. Maybe it's not well-aged wine, but that, that sounds nice, right? It's like, oh, yeah, well-aged wine. Um, but maybe you like chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk. <laughs> maybe that's your well-aged wine. Uh, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Then he describes it even further. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he prepares this for us. This is the grace of God. So it's very contradictory. It's very weird that the, the, the writer of Hebrews says, by the grace of God, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son, he eats death. Now that doesn't sound very gracious, does it? But the grace of God is, is for us. He says, for us, he prepares a feast, a banquet, a buffet of rich food, of well-aged wine. But look at what God eats on that day. In verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he tells us what it is. He will swallow up death forever. Sin, death. He's going to swallow it up forever. Because of that, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Verse 9, oh, I mean, end of verse 8, and the reproach, the shame of his people, our shame, he would take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So God prepares this beautiful banquet for us. And he says, you don't have to swallow death because Jesus did it for you. And, and God doesn't partake of the banquet. He partakes of death for us. And he swallows it in victory, Paul says. And the writer of Hebrews says that he tastes death, he eats death for everyone. And that word is actually better translated as everything. He does it for everything. Not just you and not just me, but for everything in this world, he swallows death. And I don't have time to work all that out. We'll talk about a lot of that when we talk about society at the end of this series. But Jesus is in the business of reconciling all things to himself. This is Colossians 1. All things, not just you and not just me. All things he's trying to reconcile to himself. So we'll talk about that more when we get into society. But he tastes death for everything. He eats for everything. All right, 
Let's roll through these next verses. Verse 10, for it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, so they exist for him, all things do, and by him, all things do, in bringing many sons to glory. So now we see an introduction of many sons. We've seen the son, the son, the son over in Hebrews 1 and 2. Now he says, because he's the son, we can become sons. Because he's the son, we become sons. Now, I won't get into this either. You can talk to me about this afterwards. But he doesn't say we become sons and daughters here. And that's very significant. He says we become sons. Our identity is in him as a son. And that's why we become sons too. Okay? Um, we can tease it out later if you want to talk about it after the sermon. Uh, but he brings us to glory, all of us, if we're in him. And he says that in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, the leader, the pioneer, the director, the, the author of their salvation perfect. When he says perfect, complete, fulfilled through suffering, whole through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you guys realize what that means for you in Christ? If your identity is in Christ, do you realize what this means for you? And what it means that we have the same Father, same Father as Jesus, we have the same Father. It means that we're Christ's brothers. It means that we're sons with Him. It means we have the same Spirit. Like, and if, you've, if you have been in church for a while, when you hear those phrases, you're like, yeah, 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 I know that, I, know that. I hear that. But it wasn't that way before. It's only through Christ's death and resurrection that he's made it possible for you to have this same exact spirit of God that is in him dwell in you. That's amazing. Like, I've, I've spent so many years in seminary, so many years studying the scriptures, and I still can't fathom how that's even possible. I still don't understand it. And he says, but that's the case. We all have one source. And because of that, he has made, and, and he's made us holy. He's set us apart. He's sanctified us. And he says, because of that, he's not ashamed of you. Do you, I think one of the, one of the biggest issues in the church today is the issue of shame. Why would Jesus be ashamed of you? Well, I can probably think of a hundred million reasons why he'd be ashamed of you and ashamed of me. You think about your past life. You think about your present life. You think about what your future might look like. And he should probably be ashamed of us. But the Bible says right there that he's not ashamed of you if you are in him. Because if you are sanctified, you are holy, you are pure, you are blameless, because he is holy, he is pure, he is blameless. And so shame has no part in your life. It doesn't belong there. As a follower of Jesus, Shame is, an, is a tool of the enemy that has no place in our lives. No matter what you did in your past, no matter what you did this morning, no matter what you're going to do in the future, shame has no part in your life. Because Jesus says if you're in him, he will not be ashamed of you. And get this in verse 12. He, Jesus says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In the midst of the church, that word there is the same word for church. He says, in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. If shame has no place in our society, it's in the church. If shame is going to be killed, if it's not going to be fed into, if it's not going to grow, it isn't going to do that in the church. It has to stop in the church if it's going to do it anywhere. 
Um, our last week, we were at our Trinity Life camping retreat, which was pretty amazing, right? Like, it was pretty awesome. Like, it was just so fun. Um, we had, it was just such a good time. God did something in our midst, um, and it was, it was just really sweet and really special. And we did worship service out there last Sunday, and two people shared in that, in that worship gathering. Jamie shared, and uh, Matt shared. And I don't see Matt in here today, um, but Jamie's up here. And why don't you come up and share? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Her face is like, huh? Uh-huh. Uh, Jamie and Matt shared, and they shared their story of shame. And their story should be one where if we're not in Jesus, we say, shame on you. Shame on you. That that was your life. That, that, or that that is your life. Shame on you that you would even share that with us. But with the beauty of the gospel, there's no shame in the congregation. There's no shame in the church. And instead of saying shame on you, we say blessings on you for sharing that with us. Thank you for telling us of your life where you cursed God and he still showed you his faithfulness. Where you cursed God and he still showed you his goodness. Thank you for sharing that with us so that I know that God is still there when I'm distant from him. Thank you for sharing your life of promiscuity with us so that we know that the, the enemy has no hold on you anymore, that Jesus was your rescuer and your redeemer, and that he sets you up on the rock and that you can point to that rock and say, I'm only here today because of Jesus. And we can praise God for that because shame has no place in the congregation. Shame has no place in the church. The devil, the enemy, he loves hiddenness. Those things he wants us to keep hidden away in the dark. He doesn't want us to bring, bring those out. He says, keep those hidden. Yeah, let me work on those. Yeah, you should be ashamed of this. Yeah, don't tell someone this. They're just going to judge you. But in the church, in the congregation, that has no place. Paul says in Ephesians 5, bring those things into the light. He says, you were once that way. Now you are children of light. And he doesn't, say, he doesn't just say you're children of light. He says, you, right before that, he says, you are light. You were darkness, but now you're actually light. He says, those works have no place with you anymore. And when you take things out of the darkness and you make them visible, he says, they actually become light. That's what we get to do with Jesus. And that's why there's no shame in the congregation because we get to bring those things out into the light. And then he says verse 13 here, and we'll actually come back to verse 13 at the end of, of the sermon because he, he quotes from a larger passage in Isaiah 8, and we're going we're gonna to walk through that. But he points to the faith, his faithfulness, uh, his faith in God, and he also points again to, to the church, the children of God that, that are with him. In verse 14 through 18, there's two main ideas in here. One, Jesus had to become like us. He had to fully take on human nature to be our representative. So he had, to take everything, he had to take everything that we had onto him. Flesh and blood, it says in verse 14. Um, and Jesus, because he was perfect and God and sinless, and because he took on flesh and blood that we have, he was the perfect representative for us, the God-man, as theologians will call him. And the second main idea through these next uh, five verses is that all this was to benefit us. All this was for you. All this was for you and for me. In verse 10, he's already said it's to bring us into glory. In verse 11, he says that it was to sanctify us and make us holy. In verse uh, 14, he says it's, it's to uh, rescue us. In verse 15, he says it's to liberate us. In verse 17, he says it's to make atonement for us. And in verse 18, he says it's just to help us. It's to help us. And it's all for our benefit. So in verse 14, he says, Since therefore, 
all, all the what we just talked about, therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook at one time, that's past tense. So Jesus at one time partook in flesh and blood of those same things. So that, that tells us that Jesus at one point, before the incarnation, before he became a human, at one point, he wasn't like that. He was like that for 33 years, and then now we don't share the same distinction anymore. So for 33 years with Jesus, we share the same distinction. Now there's a new distinction he's ushering us into, and he's calling us into. And here we go. He says that through death, cross, he might destroy, that word literally means render powerless, the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So he's gonna, he renders powerless the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the reality for you this morning. If you're not in Jesus, you're in death, and you're in lifelong slavery. It's only Jesus who frees you from that. And if you feel like, you've, if, if you, feel like you might be a Christian <laughs> or you're a Christian, and, and you feel like you're, you're still bound by the fear of death, and you're still in lifelong slavery, two things. One, maybe you're not actually a follower of Jesus. Maybe you haven't actually consumed Jesus like, like he calls us to. Or two, wake up. He doesn't want you to be like that. And you're not supposed to be like that. Because he has rendered powerless the one who has that power, the one who has the power of death. And he says, for surely it's not angels. He brings back angels. He's, he's big on angels. He says, for surely it was not for angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, us, humans. He helps us. And, when he, and that word for helps literally means he appropriates us. He takes a hold of us and puts us in him. And he makes us his own. And he, he takes us in him. And then he says, verse 17, Therefore, he to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, mediator, go-between for us in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word just means avert wrath, make atonement for, have mercy for the sins of the people. But how do we... So how do we take this to our city? How do we talk to this about people? I don't use the word propitiation anywhere else <laughs> unless I'm reading it from here. Like, I'm not just going to go to my workplace and be like, hey, propitiation for you. <laughs> Jesus has it for you. Uh, I don't even know. I was like, what does that even mean, right? Um, here's the thing. A lot of times we take truth to the world, which we need to. We should. We have the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But a lot of times we take the truth and we forget to take the way and the life. Remember talking about this a few weeks ago? And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9 about the cross. 9 verse 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So three things, and we're not going to go deeply into these three things. Three things that we do when we engage society with this truth. One, we take up a cross daily, and that means we deny ourselves. You have to deny yourself. That literally means you disown yourself. You, you recognize you no longer have ownership of yourself. That Jesus does. And you deny yourself daily. That means taking up your cross daily. You deny yourself daily. We're so busy affirming ourselves that we forget to deny ourselves. But he says deny yourself. Number two, he says 
Give yourself. Follow him. You got to give yourself away daily. We're, we love to receive. A lot of us don't love to give. He says, you need to give yourself to me daily. Number three, die yourself. That's weirdly phrased, I know. But it means that not just die to yourself. We like to say that a lot of times in, in Christian circles, that we need to die to yourself, which is also a truth. But you have to die yourself. Like you yourself have to die to your passions, to your sinful desires, to the ways of this world. We're too busy trying to live like the world, and we forget that, no, Jesus says take your cross daily means die to the ways of this world. But we're afraid of death. He says we have the fear of death. We're enslaved. But Jesus freed us from those things. He liberated us. We don't have to be afraid of those things. We shouldn't be afraid of those things. A lot has happened in the past year in our church. Um, I was thinking about this week because a few people outside of our church who used to be with us that have moved to different cities contacted me and said, man, you guys have been through a lot in the past year. And I think about the past year and Daniel, uh, one of our former pastors, uh, his mom died last year, um, I guess about a year and a half ago, and we went through a period of mourning with him and his family, and um, I mean, he's, he's a young guy, right, 37, and his, his mom gone. Uh, and then Daniel and Linda, they left uh, Toronto this past year, and our church went through a pretty big period of grief and mourning. At the same time, we, we knew God was calling us into a new season, but it was a tough, it was a tough season. And then, um, yeah, it just feels like the enemy has been so present in attacking, and uh, Cindy's dad died in April. And was it April or May? April, um, May. And our church went through mourning with them. And I feel like we were trying to learn how to grieve and how to mourn with, with a family. And then as a church, we had our first death in the church, um, like someone who is part of our church. And we tried to figure out how to do that. Um, and Wendy is, is um, was just a glorious example of someone who persevered to the end. And, and then Adam, Adam's mom last week, um, just so much tragedy. And in the midst of that, um, I've just been asking God, like, what's going on, God? Like, what's, what's happening? Uh, in, <laughs> in that time, <laughs> uh, to a lesser extent, uh, like, I got shingles, I almost broke my ankle. It was, uh, it's still swollen, you know, 16 weeks later. Um, I got food poisoning. I was sick. So, like, it felt like a lot of our leaders in the church are just experiencing, like, these hardships and difficulties, and, and we're trying to navigate it as a church. We're saying, God, what? And I was just like, God, what's, what's going on? What is the enemy trying to do? What's he trying to distract us from? What's he trying to to um, push us into? What's he trying to inject in our community that you don't want here? And, you know, reading this passage, verse 18, he's, the writer says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, and that's actually not the best translation, that, that word is when tested. Now, temptation is a huge part of that, but normally when we think tempted, we think we go directly to sin, but it says when Jesus was tested, now again, temptation is part of that, but his supreme test was the cross. His supreme test was death. And when he suffered when tested, he is able to help those who are being tested, who are being tempted. Us. He's able to help us. 
he's able to help us persevere and endure because he persevered and he endured. And verse 13, like I said, points us to faithfulness and to the church. And this is the writer of Hebrews quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 16, you can follow up on the screen. And Isaiah says this, he says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, from the Lord Almighty, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they, when the world, when the naysayers, when they say to you, hey, go inquire of the mediums, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Shouldn't we be crying out to God? He says, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? I love this phrase here. He says, to the teaching and to the testimony. He says, to this, to the teaching and to the testimony. We know this is sure. Right here, this word of God is sure. He says, go to that. Don't go to the world. Don't listen to what they're saying about your hardships and your struggles and your shame. He says, go to the word. And he says, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They're in darkness. They don't see the light. It's not coming. They'll pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. Is that you? Do you feel like that? He says, and when they're hungry, they'll be enraged. They're hungry for something. They don't, they don't know what it is. They're enraged. And they'll curse, they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their god and turn their faces upward. Like, not to look to God, but to thumb their nose at Him. And instead, they will look to the earth. They'll look to the world. But behold, distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they'll be thrust into thick darkness. That's what the enemy wants for us. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for a church in this time of mourning and grief and death. That's what he wants for you and your life. He wants gloom and anguish. He wants you to thumb your nose at, at God and to look to the world. But Isaiah says, all you're going to behold is distress and darkness. But this is what Jesus wants for you. The very next verse Chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Going down to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. No more lifelong slavery. No more fear of death. He says those things have been broken. And he's going to tell us by who. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you guys know what that word means there, zeal? The passion, the pursuit of the Lord for you is what makes this happen. He wants you. And he's going to pursue you and pursue you. And he wants you and he's going to take a hold of you and help you and put you in him so that you no longer have uh, live a life of lifelong slavery. So that no, you no longer have to fear death. So that the enemy, gloom, darkness, depression has no place, anguish, no place, shame, no place in your life. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're not supposed to live in that reality where anguish and gloom and darkness reign because you've been gifted a new reality where those things have no existence, where it's only light. And so if you feel like you're groping around in the darkness, you're not supposed to be. God doesn't want that for you. And he says to the word, to the testimony. And if you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, your reality is darkness. Your reality is death. But it doesn't have to be. It can be hope. It can be light. It can be glory. And the cross, all this, was for our benefit. It was for him to bring us to glory, for him to liberate us, for him to rescue us. And maybe this morning, instead of coming to Jesus with hands like this, fists, closed hands, you just need to come to Jesus with hands open, with arms open and say, I don't care anymore, Jesus. I just don't care anymore. Take whatever you want to take. Do whatever you want to do. And show me your glory. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.